Hi folks, this is Jack Spirico with another edition of Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas. Uh, one of the last shows that will be happening here, probably at the most five or six more shows. Uh, ten would be a stretch. And uh, today we're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to talk about bow hunting. And I, I announced this yesterday, I said it might seem odd that we're going to talk about bow hunting in May. Uh, actually, April still. It's not even May yet. Uh, when bow season, for most people, is going to be somewhere around uh, October-ish or late September or mid-October, somewhere in that range is where most... And we're going to talk about specifically bow hunting for deer. A lot of what I'm going to tell you today will be applicable to hunting other game, but the thing that I've hunted more than anything else with the bow is deer. It's the... Uh, animal that's available in the widest range across the United States. And a lot of what I'm going to tell you, it's all specific to whitetails, but a lot of it would also apply to uh, mule deer as well. Uh, and in some ways, maybe even antelope, but that's kind of its own little an animal right there. But uh, you know, whether you're hunting key deer in South Florida or you're hunting big whitetails, uh, big body whitetails up in the Northeast, or you're hunting big rack bucks with relatively moderate size uh, bodies here in like Texas in the South, uh, this all applies. And those of you that are hunting deer out in California, etc., uh, this is this is pretty much applicable anywhere. And that's what we're going to talk about today. And we're going to do that because. A lot of you guys out there would like to give bow hunting a try. And if you do want to do that, the time to like select your equipment, start scouting, find a place to hunt, hone your skills so you're competent enough to take a deer with a bow, and, and all the other things that go with it, uh, the knowledge and the skill development needs to begin now and not much later. Um, there are people that are naturals to this kind of thing. The first time they pick it up, they can shoot. Uh, I have to say, honestly, I, I was kind of that way. When I first picked up a bow, I could start at least out to about 20 yards, which is a reasonable hunting distance for anything other than open plains. Um, you know, I, I, I could hit consistently. Uh, but most people aren't. Most people aren't kind of born with it in their blood, and they haven't uh, kind of been in the mindset their entire lives. Uh, and I also think it's easier. I think that if I had never taken up bow hunting and was trying to learn now, I don't think I would have picked up all the stuff as quickly as I did when I was a 13-year-old kid uh, where I had the time and I really, really wanted it. So for those of you that are adults uh, or going to be you know, uh, mentoring kids, now is the time. So that's what we're going to talk about it today. Before we do that, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today is Sawtooth Tactical. Uh, you know, Sawtooth is a great company because they have a lot of cool stuff, but they're really a great company uh, because they do a really good job of making sure that they always take care of their customers. And whether you want Magpul magazines, Maxpedition bags, or anything else that they offer you, it's not just important that you get the right product, it's that you get it in t on time. Uh, if anything ever goes wrong, because there are human beings involved in the supply chain, that they're going to make it right, that they're going to take care of you, that they're going to give you fair pricing, and they're going to do everything they can to make sure you're a satisfied customer that comes back. And when you deal with Sawtooth, that's exactly what you're going to get. So check out Sawtooth Tactical for all the stuff you need to live that tactical lifestyle. Uh, next up, you know, I talk a lot about precious metals, silver and gold. What about copper jacketed lead? That's another metal I think you should be storing. And you should store your copper jacketed lead in a, usually uh, encased with uh, brass. All right. Of course, what I'm talking about is ammo there, and the best place I know to get great deals on ammo is BulkAmmo.com. Check out BulkAmmo.com for all your common caliber stuff, uh, specifically your mil-spec mil stuff like your 9mm, your 45, your 223, uh, your 308, and even other stuff like 30-06, 40 Smith & Wesson, you name it, they got it. Lightning fast shipping, great service, great pricing. What more could you ask for? And remember, without a good supply of ammo, all your gun is is a very expensive, overpriced club. So make sure you've got ammo to go with all of those guns in your collection. Make sure you're connecting us with us on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. I've been doing a lot with Facebook when I'm up there at the bug out location. A lot more of that's coming. The amount of video con content that will be coming starting next month will blow you away. 
So get subscribed to our YouTube channel now. And again, I want to remind you, if you're already a subscriber, if you would like to get a little email from YouTube every time that... Uh, that I upload a new video, go to YouTube, go to my channel, which you can link to right from the site, and down where it says subscribe, there's a little arrow thing, like a drop-down arrow. Click that, and there'll be an option there where you can select that. That's a new feature, but anybody that had it set up kind of that way before they changed the way it's done now, it was disabled. So all of your existing subscriptions before YouTube made that change, you're not getting email notices about it anymore. So if you want to get email notices, do that. If you're subscribing as a new subscriber, make sure you select that box. That way you'll know when I upload content right away. All right, and with that, um, let's go ahead and get into the main topic of today's show. Um, again, bow hunting. And this is a topic that I thought it would be a good time for me to do for uh, a variety of reasons. And I'm going to do some fun stuff with you today. Um, I don't have, I have actually uh, a grunt, a, a couple different grunt calls and uh, some, some bleat calls as well. But I, they're all packed up and they're all in Arkansas. Uh, so I'm going to do some approximations of those sounds for you and tell you about uh, what they do as far as attracting or stopping deer and what their limitations and what their usefulness is. And I actually don't have a set of horns here, but I do have what they call a rattling bag. And I'm going to do some rattling for you, and I'm going to tell you about that. So that, the rattling will sound great. The uh, the grunts and the bleats uh, will do the best that I can do without a call, which isn't that great. But I, I want to make this a fun, interactive show, not just a, a whirlwind tour of all things archery. And I want it to be practical, and I want even the professional out there, the guy that's a bow hunter and hunts every year with the bow, I hope you learn one or two things from the show because – If you've been around and you're a veteran bow hunter, you know that adding one or two little tiny things to what you're doing can often be the difference between getting that nice buck or that great big meat dough uh, and going home without. So hopefully I'll be able to help everybody out with some, some tips and tricks today. But I want to start out with assuming that the majority of people are not bow hunters and kind of just getting started from the, uh, from the get-go. Before we talk about the different options for what kind of bow you can get, I just want to talk about the skill set as a whole. First of all, I think archery is a skill set that's, that's been lost in America and it should be reclaimed. Um, on, on the other hand, I almost feel like the more I do to encourage more bow hunters, the more I do to, to make the sport less beneficial to me. See, there's something about bow hunting that just doesn't exist in, in most areas with, with other forms of hunting. It's actually an opportunity to get out there and hunt in a, in a, in a real meaningful way without the deer being overly influenced by other hunters. And what I mean is that the number of bow hunters is very small, especially in the deer hunting community, relative to the number of rifle hunters. And archery seasons in most, not all, but in most states start before rifle season and you get more time in the woods. And that means that you could be out there hunting when the deer are pretty much going by their own patterns and behaviors that we'll get into in just a minute, rather than being so heavily affected by hundreds of other people sharing the same woods that you are if you're not lucky enough to have private land or a private lease, something else we'll often talk about. So it's, it's a great sport. And the more I do to encourage other people to do it, the more crowded I make the area. But there's still plenty of room out there. So I'd love to see the skill set developed. The big thing I want you to get out of what I'm saying, though, with the skill set development is, number one, is there's no such thing as too much practice. And unlike your rifle that you have to make a trip somewhere to, uh, to shoot, most of you can set up a place to shoot in your backyard without any trouble. Uh, I'm sure there's some of you with really small yards and pain-in-the-ass neighbors, but that's not the case. But I'd say the majority of people from suburbia uh, out to the rural areas, you can set up a place to shoot and shoot and shoot and shoot and shoot. Uh, my first year, even though, I, like I said, when I first picked up a bow, learned how to draw it, learned how to hold it, learned how to release, learned how the sights worked, it was a compound bow, and, uh, man, I mean, 20 yards, I could hit... Um, not just a paper plate, but the, the, the center area of a paper plate on every single shot. And if you know anything about deer anatomy, if you can do that, you can consistently take deer. And I mean, that was within a day. And, but in spite of that, I shot every single day until the season started. I'd shoot at the hay bales on the ground. Eventually, we got a ladder, put it up on the roof of the house, and I would shoot off the roof because there is a difference in shooting from an elevated position versus shooting on a level position in the way that your arrows impact. You also have to think about the anatomy of the deer. There's a lot of things that go with that. But the key was I practiced, I practiced, and I practiced. And no matter how good I got, I kept practicing. And there was a reason. With a gun, if I shoot a deer and I don't hit the best hit, 
but it's enough to slow them down. I, I can put another two, three rounds out relatively quickly, even with a bolt action. It's not so much the same with uh, with an arrow. And an arrow is an extremely lethal, uh, efficient, and, and a very humane uh, implement for killing when it's used efficiently and effectively. It's a very cruel tool when it's used ineffectively. An animal shot in the stomach or what have you with an arrow, uh, it is a massively horrific thing to ever have happen. And any bow hunter that really cares about his quarry, uh, the one thing he always wants to be able to say, if you miss, you miss, right? You don't want to cripple. Crippling a deer makes you sick to the stomach. Uh, when, you, when, you're, when you're a true, true uh, archer that, that's true to your craft. So I, I'd like to make sure that people understand that's part of why the practicing is so important. It's also about developing your muscle sets. Drawing a bow that's 50, 60-pound draw, especially a compound bow with a 50% let off, and what that means is we'll get into it, but it gets easier once you go past a certain point in the draw. It's really not that hard. It, but what you're doing is you're using muscles uh, either in your fingers, in your, the back of your hand, and certain shoulder muscles if you're shooting with fingers, or you're using muscles that are more in the top of your forearm and the top of your shoulder that you're not accustomed to using in that way. And those muscles don't need to be developed like a bodybuilder, but they need to be developed lean and strong and, and toned in a way that allows you to consistently shoot well. Uh, because all the stuff you're going to do when you're, when you're practicing is perfect body position, but when you're actually out there, you might have to contort to, to get a shot around something. You might be up in a tree. You might have your back up against the tree or your arm against the tree. And until you develop the muscle sets, even if you can sit there and stand in the open and shoot consistently time and time again, if you don't have that, certain things can happen out there, like getting caught with the bow back. And having those muscles develop gives you the ability to hold out until that deer puts its head back down and you can take that clean shot and what have you. So it's about developing the muscles as much as the skill. It's also, I, I want to be very clear that the target shooting that you're doing for hunting is, is about developing the skill set. True target shooting, like the competitions where the guys have the tricked out bows that are $5,000 bows and special arrows and they have stabilizers and all this crap and you look at the bow and it's got these two big fork things off it and all this, you know, uh, all this equipment, uh, you know, it's designed and they're, they're dressed like, you know, freaking, uh, guys playing darts or something professionally. Um, that's not really germane to hunting in my opinion. Because if you go out with a bow equipped that way, it's just not a practical tool to be out there with. So I want to make sure that I'm drawing a very clear delineation today. We're talking about hunting. We're talking about taking that bow, taking that arrow, placing that, that shot exactly where it needs to go, understanding the anatomy, understanding the situation, so that we can put meat on the table. Uh, I often hear people say, well, are you, are you a trophy hunter or are you a meat hunter? And my answer is both. Right, I don't. I, I, you know, if I go out and take a really nice buck, a great big uh, ten-point buck, you know, that scores well, uh, Pope and Young, I'm going to be very proud of that trophy. I'm still going to eat every scrap of meat and use everything on that animal that makes sense for me to use, and I'm going to be just as happy as far as the fulfillment if I take a really nice meat dough. Or even a nice young of year dough, you know, that's only 60 to 80 pounds, real nice, tender, good eating animal. All of these things are uh, equally valid, but there is a certain uh, happiness that comes from taking something really significant. And those that say the Native Americans didn't do such things don't know their ass from a hole in the ground. Uh, the Native Americans took plenty of trophies. They just utilized the other parts of the animal. So the only time I have a problem with trophy hunters is trophy hunters who only hunt for the trophy and, and don't care about the other stuff. If you hunt for the trophy and the other stuff, I have no issues there. Uh, let's get into bows. There's, there's, there's what I call snobs at all levels of archery. And some of the worst ones are the traditional archers that use a recurve or a long bow. And there's several other different types of bows I could go into. But these are basically a bow. It's the simplest form of a bow you can get. You've got limbs, you've got a rest, and you've got a string. And there's no pulleys involved. And let's just call that traditional archery equipment. And some of the snobs would say you know, that a long bow or a short bow is traditional archery equipment. But a recurve, which simply means instead of the limbs just arching back kind of like a half a C, uh, they... they come back and then they 
pull back, they kind of come back out. And I can put a link to some different uh, pictures of those for you to get a better understanding of that. But the recurve is kind of a step up above, above you know, the, the basic bow. And that allows for a little bit more oomph, and you get a little bit more arrow speed and all. But I consider it all traditional equipment because it doesn't involve any kind of mechanical devices. Um, and, and that's one option that you have. And the next option, of course, is the one that most archers are out there with today is a compound bow. And there's a lot of traditional archer, archers that feel like the compound bow is almost like an unfair advantage for the hunter. And I think most of those hunters haven't really ever hunted with a compound bow, and they're just really proud of what they do, and there's nothing wrong with that. And I've hunted both ways. And I can tell you that the, the biggest advantage is a com of a compound bow is it will extend your range, and it will be more likely that if you get burned by a deer, where you go to full draw, And before you can target and release the arrow, that deer catches you. Because if that happens to you, you cannot let go of the arrow. I've seen deer 15, 12, 15 yards burn a guy with the bow, and the guy thinks he can make the shot, let that arrow go, and I don't care how fast shooting a bow he has. I've seen those deer hit their belly and watch that arrow go over their back, and I've seen them go into the air and watch that arrow go underneath them. Their reaction time is absolutely phenomenal. Now, I'm sure if you were close enough, you could, you could close the gap on that. But odds are, if you get burned at that distance, that deer's gone. The advantage for the traditional archer is that, generally speaking, we're going to shoot instinctively versus with sights. And when you become a good instinctive shooter, you are much quicker from draw to release than somebody with sights. The sights, I'm going to align them, I'm going to put them where I want them, I'm going to let them go. The instinctive shooter has already picked the spot as the bow's coming back and literally can, as soon as that, that, that arrow comes to full draw, release, and that shot's going to go pretty much where it's supposed to go. Now, that doesn't mean you can't shoot instinctive with a compound bow. I've done it plenty of times. It doesn't mean you can't put sights on a recurve. Plenty of people do that. It's all up to you. I think new shooters do better to shoot with sights initially, develop their confidence, and then if you want to learn to shoot instinctively, start out with target shooting, obviously, take the sights off and just start shooting. And instinctive shooting is an art, it's not a science. I see a lot of people out there that are going to learn instinctive shooting, they basically look at the tip of the arrow and they hold it underneath or over the target based on their range. To me, that's not instinctive shooting. I've replaced the sight that was uh, a pin sight, for instance, with the, the, the tip of the arrow has become the new sight. True instinctive shooting, you're really not paying attention to the arrow. You're paying attention to the impact point, and once you get good at it, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. Until you do, you won't really understand it. What will happen is you'll just draw the bow, you'll look at the target, you'll let go, and that arrow will go right where you expected it to, even when you miss. And what I mean by that is you, you, when you have a bad shot, you'll know it was a bad shot, you'll know right where the arrow is going. Sight shooting, eventually you get that way. Sight shooting, when you, when, you, when you pluck or you do something you're not supposed to or you, you let the bow fall, you know not only you're going to miss, but you know where the arrow is going. By the time that happens, you're halfway to being able to switch to an instinctive sh shooter. I pretty much shoot with sights, though, when I'm, when I'm hunting deer, and here's why. I'm a better shot that way, and it is more important to me that when I let go of that arrow to know that I'm going to make a clean, humane kill than to feel like I am something special because I can shoot instinctively. And to me, the, the, that's a kind of a very important thing. I'll also tell you something about instinctive shooting. It will change based on the bow you're holding. Uh, usually a good instinctive shooter can pick up a new bow, fire a few arrows, and all of a sudden get right on again. But that first couple shots, it's, it's not going to be there. Sights, if you have sights on a bow, you can pick up any bow. And when you shoot it, it's going to hit where those sights are pointed if it's sighted for you based on everything like your draw point, your knock point, things like that. I'm not going to go into a lot of the like the, those technicalities. What I'm going to tell you is this. There's good bow shops and bad shops, but most of them are pretty good. Getting out to a bow shop and talking to them uh, and getting a bow set up for you and get a lighter draw weight than you can pull and a lighter draw weight than you think you can need. My first bow was a, uh, I think it was a Whitetail 2. Or maybe it was a PSE. I don't remember what it was. This was many, many years ago. I mowed grass to make enough money to buy my first bow. And my uncle took me down and we bought one. And it was a 45-pound draw. And it was a bow that we could crank up to 60 pounds eventually. Um, I shot basic cheap aluminum arrows. Nobody even used carbon arrows or, or anything like that, or composite arrows or anything like that back then. A basic satellite broadhead is what it was called. I think they still make those 125-grain satellite broadhead. Four-blade broadhead, 
uh, as basic as it got. And I shot that bow for three years before I turned up the draw weight on it. I killed three deer in three years. None of them went very far. The thing did what it was supposed to every time. And now we have bows. You know, guys are shooting 70, 75-pound bows. My my bow that I have right now is made by High Country Archery. And, and I'll admit myself, I have it set on 70 pounds, and it shoots an arrow like a laser. And I'm actually, when we move and, and I go hunting this year, I'm going to go to a bow shop. There's some things that I want tuned up and done on it. I'm going to drop the draw weight down. I have a shoulder injury from the military. I don't need to be putting that amount of stress on my shoulder. Um, and it's just not necessary. It just really isn't. Most deer, especially in the woodland settings, are going to be shot at ranges between 12 to 25 yards, I would say. And will I drop it to 45? No, but I'll probably drop it down to about 55 pounds. And I, I think it'll be everything that I need it to be. Um, so just kind of some caution there on the draw weight. On shooting with fingers versus shooting with release, I'm going to say real quick on this today. Um, I think that the finger shooter has a, a tremendous advantage because you're not dependent on the release. The release is one more thing that can fail. It takes longer to get set up for a shot. Uh, but... If you, if you hunt in a place where it gets really, really freaking cold, the release shooter can wear significantly warm gloves without trying to pull finger, you know, like a finger opening out or something like that. And that's the big advantage that I've seen for the release is for those in very cold climates to get out like it's a second season and what have you, where it's really cold and you want to wear real gloves. Um, You, can you shoot more accurately with a release? Yes, but I've never been impaired enough by shooting what they would call Apache style to not be able to shoot well there. I'm not going to talk about knocking points and everything. I want to go on to actually getting out there and hunting and some different basic hunting techniques just so you can get an understanding of, uh, of what they are and what they mean when you, so that when you go get a copy of like bow hunting magazine or something and they, they talk about using some, some sort of technique while it's still hunting or stand hunting or stalking, you understand what the hell they're talking about. So, and, and th these will be the same no matter what game you're hunting or what you're hunting with, the basic concepts of this. Uh, spot and stalk is, is very popular, um, and it takes a little bit more skill than stand hunting because you're actually out there moving with the animal. But it offers some advantages because you're mobile, you can cover more ground, and you're more likely to spot game. Spot and stalk is exactly what it sounds like. You move quietly through an area following game trails, following feeding sign, fighting, following whatever it is or whatever scouting you've done that's told you there's deer in the area, looking for an animal. When you spot an animal that you want to take, you begin to stalk and very quietly approaching the animal, uh, trying to, to, to do it in such a way that you're getting close enough for a shot. Very, very challenging with deer hunting, but certainly it can be done. And where you're hunting and how, the, how, how often the deer uh, see other people has a lot to do with that. Is it a heavily hunted area? There's places where you can go spot and stalk, and it's easier to hunt that way uh, than hunting from a tree stand. And then there's places where it's completely the opposite. Uh, the big thing with, with spot and stalk is that you're moving. And deer clue in on movement incredibly well. Their eyesight is, is very, very good, but it's almost overrated the way I think some people uh, think about it. There's a lot of things that you would look at and you would know that's a man. You would instantly know that's a man. And a deer will look at it, and if it's not moving, doesn't really know, not really sure. Eventually, if it doesn't move long enough, he'll kind of put himself at ease with it and, and decide, hey, you know what, that's okay, and go on about his way and maybe approach and give you the shot. Where a human being would just look at that and go, that's a person sitting up in that tree who wants to shoot me, and I'm not going to go over there and get shot. Um, so they don't have quite the vision when it comes to, to, to looking at things and discerning them that maybe some people think. But when it comes to movement, their vision is so much better than ours. So anytime you're moving, you're going to be more likely to be made, as you would say, by a deer. Um, still hunting is like spot, spot and stalk, except you're going to move much more slow. Still hunting is kind of like a ground point between stand hunting and, and, and spot and stalk. A still hunter's moving very, very, very slowly, almost imperceptibly. Uh, it might take you 15 minutes to cover 20 yards as a still hunter. 
There's a, a lot to be said for still hunting. I love to still hunt things like squirrels and other more abundant game. I've never been really big on still hunting deer. I prefer to pattern them and stand hunt them, or if I'm in an area where, where spot and stalk makes sense, to move a little bit quicker. Um, and, you know, kind of still hunting is almost like you're always stalking. And you're hoping to find something. So you're moving incredibly slowly, almost trying to be part of the woods. It, it, there's a lot to be said for it. But when it comes to putting meat in the freezer, it may not be the most effective method. Basic stand hunting like a ground blind is something that a lot of archers don't do. Uh, archers tend to want to get up in the trees if they can. There's a lot of advantages there. And if you're not careful, there's some disadvantages. Uh, but there are places where you don't have any choice. There was a place I took a deer, uh, some state game lands I took deer at in Pennsylvania while we were up there during my three years with Fluke Networks. And um, the reason I didn't use a tree wasn't because there were no trees around. There were plenty of trees around. There were huge oaks. It was a very well-managed piece of state game land. Uh, but these oaks were so big around, you could barely get your arms around them. So I couldn't get my climbing stand on them. Since it's public ground, you obviously can't build any kind of a stand. So there were deer in the area. It, because it didn't have trees that were really suitable for climbing stands, uh, most of the archers weren't hunting that particular area. So what I, what I did is I used one of those things. It almost looked like a tent that pops up. Uh, and use the ground blind, and that's that's another uh, you know option there. And there's you can make natural blinds and what have you. I like the pop up blinds as long as they're legal where you're at that have the like kind of the, the screening that you can see through, almost like a solar screen on a house that are designed that you can shoot straight through the screening. And again, there's people who would think that's not fair, but you know it depends on the situation and where you're at. I would rather be in a tree than in one of those any day. But there's places where that just doesn't work. So you have to adapt to the situation. Tree stand hunting is my favorite way to hunt. I think that you'll, and I want to, when I get to the end of today's show, I'm going to talk a little bit about what you see, know, feel uh, as a bow hunter that other people will just never experience. Um, but yeah, you do see things. I've, I've been in trees and had squirrels running up and down the same tree that I'm in. You know, a tree that you can reach out and touch. And I've had squirrels run up that tree, sit there and just look at me and try to figure out what I am. I've had people walk by all kinds of things I'll get into later um, that tells you how effective it is. And deer naturally don't expect danger from above. They check a lot. And if you're a hunter and you've been up in trees, you know they check a lot. But they, they're less likely to fear something that's 20 feet above them. It also gets your scent uh, less likely to be right down in front of you when there's a shift in the wind. It's something you have to pay a lot of attention to. If the deer are downwind from you and you're up in a tree, it's not going to do you much good. But if they come in from, you know, read their wind right, they come in from an area, and then they get onto the downwind side, but they're relatively close to the tree, it will carry some of that scent over them. They're not quite as likely to cue in on it. So... For all of those reasons, I like tree stands. When it comes to tree stands, there's pretty much three options. There's what you would call a climbing stand, which is a stand that you can carry on your back. You put it around a tree. You basically hug the tree, pull your legs up, lock it in, and repeat. It's not easy the first time. It really isn't. It's something you get a feel for. You need to make sure that if you're using a stand like that, it's rated for your weight, and it's got a large enough platform. The, the, the deer stand that I used when I was 14 years old, 13, 14 years old, uh, I went away to the Army, I came back, and I looked at it, and I couldn't believe I ever stood on that thing in a tree. It just seemed way too small for me, because I'd, my shoulders had filled out, I was a bigger guy. I wasn't carrying any gut at all, but I was just a larger man, and I could not have used that stand again safely. Uh, so that's something to consider. Weight is important. Some of the better stands uh, made out of aluminum alloys and stuff. I have a stand now. Can't remember who makes it, but it only weighs like 15 pounds, and it has a seat. Uh, having a seat is a big deal, being able to sit down. Uh, you think, I'll just stand there. And my original, uh, my original deer stand, there was no seat. You just stood there. And occasionally maybe you'd squat down and all. Having a seat makes you able to stay out there longer. Uh, lightweight for a climbing stand makes you be able to go further back in. You have to think about this. Uh, it's Okay, well, my stand's 16 pounds, yours is 25 pounds. If we're both going to go back in a mile or two, that's not that far, not that big a deal. What is 10 pounds? Yeah, if you're hunting you know, 20 miles from civilization, it matters. But on a 100-yard walk-in or something like that, does it really matter? Um, yeah, and I'll tell you when it matters. When you're dragging a 120-pound deer, 
and you've got an extra 10 pounds on your back, it matters then. Lighter stands are more comfortable to carry. You're going to be more likely to, to walk in further and to get into areas other people can't get to. The other types of stands are what you would call a, 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 a climbing stand, not a climbing stand, but a climber stand, I guess. I don't know what people really call them because I don't use them, but these are more of a stand, a, a hanging stand is what they call them. So you have some sort of a ladder that you either bring in with you or you leave with your stand, you put it in place, you go in there and you climb up to it, but it's removable. You can move it to another location and what have you. The problem with them on any kind of public ground, ground and places where other people hunt is they do get stolen. I had uh, one in my life and it got stolen and I said never again. Uh, but if you have private ground, a deer lease or something like that, uh, they make a lot of sense because when you go in, you're not climbing up that tree, you're not making any noise. You go in, you're up, you're in, you're set up, you're ready to go faster. So you're less likely to disturb the area when you come in initially and when you go out because you might be coming back and hunting the same place a day or two later. I'm not a fan of hunting the same exact spot two to three days in a row. I think that, that can be a really bad way to move deer out of the area. Uh, but even, even when you're coming back a day, you know, skipping a day or what have you, not making a lot of noise when you're going out is just as important as not making noise when you're coming in. So that's an advantage to a hanging stand. The other one is the permanent stand, where if you own the land and you go up and you actually kind of build like a little mini treehouse or something like that. Never been a huge fan of them because they damage trees uh, and they're permanent structures. But there are some advantages. One, everything I said about a hanging stand. You go in, you make no noise, you climb up, you're in, you're ready to go. Uh, the other thing is they're there all the time, so the deer become accustomed to them. So it's not a foreign thing, right? They, they don't. They have, your scent is so important, and we'll talk about that in a bit. But they they don't have any scent because they become part of the woods. So those are all things that can work in their you know can work. And then of course there's more of the box blind type of things that aren't generally that big with archers. But I bring them up real quick because some people expect them. I've never been a huge fan of them. Uh, until I hunted the pouring rain in Texas and found out they were legal. A box blind in Pennsylvania would get you sent to jail. It would be considered hunting basically from a house. And it would be completely unacceptable. So everything I'm telling you, you have to balance with your local laws. Because the laws change from state to state, seasons, what you know, whether you can feed deer, how often you can feed deer, how close you can hunt to a feeder, when you have to stop feeding. Some states you can feed, you can hunt near feeders in archery season, but not in rifle season. These are all things you have to figure out for yourself based on your own rules uh, and regulations. But what I want to talk about now, and this will be some stuff that hopefully if you are a veteran bow hunter, at least one of these will be something maybe you didn't know about or hadn't used this way, uh, techniques that give you an edge. Um, number one is I, I want to talk about scents that can be helpful. Uh, there's a lot, you know, there's a whole industry providing scents for hunters, cover scents, attractants, and things like that. I've never been big on the ones that smell like food. Uh, my absolute all-time favorite deer lure scent is Tink's Doe and Rut, Tink's, Tink's number 69. Uh, I've used it all over the place. I've seen it go drive bucks crazy when they're in what's called the rut, which we'll talk about in a bit. But I've seen young deer, young does, button bucks. I've seen every kind of deer you can think of from fawns, you know, that are just about to lose their spots early in the season uh, to mature does, to mature bucks, come Pay attention to Tink's Doe and Rut Buck Lure uh, because it smells like a deer. It smells like a doe in rut, which is at the time where she's an estrus and ready to be bred. So it's obviously attractive to uh, the mature buck. But in addition to that, it smells like another deer and a deer that they're not familiar with in their area. So deer are naturally curious and want to know when other deer are around. Uh, there used to be a, a deer lure called Dr. O's. Uh, that I can't find anymore, that I used 20 years ago to make mock scrapes, which I'll also talk about, that was absolutely great. Uh, there was another one called Deer Formula. I don't think they make anymore. But just about anything that smells like a deer, that's just a general deer scent, will work good. And when you go to like a doe and rut, you kind of turbocharge that. Um, but deer naturally want to know about other animals. Again, the, the food scents I, I've never really used. My method of um, using uh, deer scent was always I would save the little 45, 35-millimeter film canisters. I, I have plenty of them left around from back in the day. I don't even know if you can find many of those anymore. But you'd get those, you'd boil them to get all the stink of the film out of them and to descent them, uh, put a couple sterile cotton balls in the bottom of them, and uh, put some of the dough lure in there and snap the top on them and keep them in a plastic bag. 
uh, with your, your bag of little tricks that we'll talk about later as well. All the little doodads that you need that everybody overlooks the first time they start bow hunting. Um, that's, and you would just put them out when you would hunt. I've also done quite a bit with drags where you take a, a, you know, a rag, saturate it with uh, something like tanks, and hang it off your foot as you walk into your stand and leave it a centro. I've seen that. I've seen bucks follow that. They look like a dog following, you know, a trail to a bone hole. I mean, they're just nose to the ground, tracking it like a bloodhound. I've seen it work that good. I've seen them completely ignore it. It does help. The big thing is I like to take the scents, and if I look at trails and, and, and places that the deer are obviously moving, that are, you know, you can look and you can actually see it almost looks like a footpath. That the deer have, you know, from using it year after year after year, generation after generation, they make these game trails. And when you're up in your tree and you figure out where you're going to be able to draw the bow, bow fully and things like that, where they're likely to have maybe their head behind a bush and have their vitals exposed, right there. Uh, and anywhere else like it in the area, maybe you have two or three of these things, you set your, your lure. Because a lot of times they'll go right to it and they'll smell it and they're occupied. And that gives you an opportunity to get the bow up and back. I just realized they didn't talk about crossbows, and this is this is what made me think of it. Some people don't think crossbows are is archery hunting. I absolutely believe crossbow hunting is archery hunting. Some states you can use a crossbow in their archery season. Some states you can't. A lot of states where you can't, they're considering it. There's a lot of people that think that like shooting a crossbow is like shooting a laser rifle. Man, you can just shoot out to 50 yards or whatever. Such people have never shot with a crossbow. Um, I can shoot further with my compound bow than any crossbow I can find. Uh, mainly because the arrow is going to shoot with a flatter trajectory, uh, a higher velocity, because I've got a longer arrow that, that, that cuts the wind a little bit better, uh, and a lighter arrow as well. Uh, and it makes less noise, so I'm less likely to cause a flinch. So even though I can put that arrow where I want to, let's say at 35 yards with a crossbow, in a lot of instances, the time between the bow going off, the arrow arriving, and the noise created, that just going to flinch or jump, and I'm going to miss or, or wound. So I'm actually going to have to re reduce my range with a crossbow. But the big advantage to the crossbow hunter is, one, I, I, it's, I'm not, if I get caught with the bow, no big deal, because I can sit there all day. Uh, waiting for my, my opportunity. But when I'm actually down to that critical moment where I have to bring the bow up and take the shot, I have less movement and I'm less likely to get burned. And that's why crossbow hunters are more successful. And that's probably the only reason that uh, if, you know, all things being equal, two people with equal skill sets and all, it's the only reason they're more successful because they're less likely to get caught on the draw. Because like I said, when you get caught on the draw, you're done. So uh, that, that was something I wanted to bring into there. But if you bring uh, any kind of a scent that, that's considered friendly to the deer, it will often occupy them and give you the chance to get that shot. The other thing is you stink. I stink, you stink, we all stink as far as deer are concerned. You could take a, a screaming hot bath using unscented soap and you still stink like a person. And they know what per persons smell like and they don't like us because they see us as predators because we are. So anything we can do to mask and eliminate our scent makes a lot of sense. Uh, today they have these charcoal suits that help absorb your scent. They have the scent block spray. Uh, scent block spray, I've used it. It does seem to help quite a bit. Um, but let me put, put this out. Uh, Mythbusters, and I know this is dogs and not deer, but Mythbusters put one of their guys, I think it was Adam, in one of the, the best deer you know, suits they could, the charcoal, absorb your scent, sprayed him down, with uh, with the, the scent eliminator, did everything they could and sent him off in the woods and the bloodhound found him, found him just as quick. I mean, it made absolutely no difference. So I'm skeptical to how big an effect these have, but I am for everything that minimizes scent and mixes scent with natural scent. This is what we did long before we had all that stuff, and it's still what I do other than I do use the scent elimination spray because I do think that has some effect. My clothes for hunting were kept in a bag. The bag was kept in a Rubbermaid tub. The Rubbermaid tub was kept in the back of a pickup truck. I literally got dressed out in the woods. So I would wear my normal clothes. I would take a shower in unscented, you know, use unscented soap or what have you, or just take a straight shower with no soap whatsoever, rinse off uh, before I went out to go hunting. I would change into my clothes, everything except the underwear, out in the woods. If anybody saw, they shouldn't have been looking if they didn't want to see what they saw. And... Inside the bag with the clothes would be a tremendous number of pine needles, which would attribute some pine scent to it. And that was about the best that we could do. We're also always very, very considerate of your wind. 
an ideal situation is if you could find deer that are traveling, say, east to west, that you are in a place where the wind blows north to south, uh, and you're on the uh, the south side of that main travel thoroughfare. It doesn't ever work out uh, that way, and wind often shifts. Always be mindful of the wind. If you set up in a location, and the wind is blowing one direction, and you're watching in one direction, always be watching in the other direction. Sometimes they'll come in even though they should have sent you, but your primary uh, way that you're watching is obviously where the, the, you're, you're, you know, where the deer are upwind of you. If the wind shifts, um, often you know you don't want to move. Start paying more attention to the other direction. If wind starts swirling, uh, it can it can help you. It can hurt you. It all depends. Uh, I'm convinced there's times where my sense actually been swirled by the wind, and the deer have mislocated me because of that, and my own scent has driven deer back to me. But do whatever you can to mitigate sending your scent in the direction of the deer. Um, here's some simple stuff, though. Silencing the arrow rest and the rest area. Generally speaking, you're going to have some type of a rest that that arrow lays on. And a lot of them, when you go to draw back, uh, makes a sound. If you, like, I like, used to use a little coil spring rest. It looks almost like a spring, like a big version of a spring that goes in a ballpoint pen, and the one piece came out. And sometimes when you drew that back, you'd get, this is back in the aluminum arrow days as well, you'd get a little bit of a squeak. Two things, a little piece of Teflon slit on there, and the other thing was I would put a little bit of Vaseline on there. And that would make it nice and slick, and it never made a sound. The other thing was I took kind of padded tape and put it all around the area, because generally you have a rest and you have an area that looks like where you'd rest an arrow if the arrow doesn't really rest. And if you're up in that tree and you go to draw and you screw something up and that arrow comes off the rest, or just you're sitting, you're looking around, you move the wrong way, that arrow comes off the rest, and then that arrow hits the bow itself, the bow frame, and it goes tick, 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 tick. And that deer a hundred yards away that you weren't even aware of just heard that and it's sitting somewhere else and you didn't even know what happened. Or that deer that you were just getting ready to draw the bow on, here's that, and now you get made. So little things like that do a lot to help. Um, if you're wearing long sleeve shirts when you're hunting, which most of us are, wearing a, um, a forearm guard is hugely helpful, even if you don't need it. Because what can often happen is even though you're not going to slap your forearm and make it red, um, that bowstring might hit your sleeves. So if you have any kind of a bulky sleeve, you might want to use a forearm rest, even if you don't generally feel that you need one. Always make sure you practice wearing the same clothing at some point. Now, practicing in May, getting out there in full camo and all, probably not a good idea. But as you get closer to the season, start wearing the clothing you're going to wear. See if there's any anything that, that gets in the way. I would often take, like if you had a button-down camo shirt that you might be wearing with a big collar, take the collar and turn it inside. Anything I could do to avoid a place where that arrow would catch. Uh, it only has to happen one time before you realize how important it is. Next thing, if you want to wear a watch, great. Get a digital watch. Make sure you just put it on silent mode so it doesn't have any beeps or, or clicks or chirps or anything. No wind-up, no uh, you know, ones you don't even have to wind that you're you know, wearing them, moving around, keeps them wound. No watches that tick. You might be convinced that the ticking of your watch is so quiet, no one can hear it. You never notice it. The first time you sit in a tree and, and, and calm your breathing and sit there in total silence, your watch is going to sound like tick, tick. Tick, tick to you, and what do you think it sounds like to a deer that can hear a hundred times better than you? Not really a hundred times, but you get my point. Um, it's a foreign sound. It doesn't belong there. It's too regular. It sounds in nature are never regular uh, metric like that. They, they have variances. It, absolutely no wind-up wrist watch when you're hunting uh, anytime, but specifically bow hunting. Uh, next one, I want to talk to you a little bit about mock scrapes. Um, you have to kind of understand, and when, I'll just go quick when I go through the rut and the pre-rut for you, since I'm going to explain so much of it now. Deer do not do what humans do. They do not have sex year-round, and they don't have one, one time a month, every month, that the female can have a baby. They have one specific time of year uh, that, that would be generally called mating season, and that's the rut. And there's the rut and the pre-rut. And when they get into the rut, that's when both the bucks are ready to go and the does are ready to go. Pre-rut is basically the bucks are ready to go and the does aren't ready to go yet. Uh, again, we'll get to that in a minute. But once that's going on, once the bucks are into there where they're ready, 
Uh, what, a, what a buck will do is they get very territorial and they decide, I want all the breedable does I can get and I will fight your ass other buck to have them. And they'll start to do things like rubbing trees, which uh, there's a belief that that's the, a lot of people think that's to get the, what they call the velvet off of the antlers. A buck's antlers are very soft for a part of the year, then they start to get hard, and then the velvet, uh, the part that was alive on the outside, peels off. Uh, they may do that a little bit, but really it just kind of falls off. Rubbing is mostly about marking territories. It's one of the ways they do that. Another way they do this is what's, what's called a scrape. And a scrape is an invitation to the does, hey, I'd like to breed, please, and would you please breed with me? And what they'll do is they'll scrape an area out, just a, a, an area out where they'll remove all the leaves and detritus that are in the ground, and it just looks like a, a place that maybe a turkey came by and scraped up looking for acorns. Except that instead of hundreds and hundreds of them out there, like pie plates, when a flock of turkeys come through, it's one here and one there, and usually following a, a trail, a, a, what they would call a deer run. And they'll scrape that, and then they'll pee in it, and they'll pee on their own back leg across their hawk gland. And that's basically an ad advertisement. I am a mature white-tail buck, and I am ready to breed and procreate doe come breed with me. When a doe is ready to breed, what she'll do is she'll go in there and she'll also urinate uh, when she's in, in heat. And that buck will keep coming back and checking his scrapes. And when he finds one where that doe is in heat, he's going to take off after her. And until he finds her and completes the breeding cycle, or until another buck kicks his ass and takes that doe away, he's not coming back. He's chasing that doe, because that's one that's ready to go. And we can use this against them, because what we can do is we can put mock scrapes in an area. And then the other buck looks at that and says, hey, there's a buck in my territory. Well, one, he wants to kick that other buck's ass, and two, he wants to steal his does. So he'll start running the scrapes as though they're his own. So you can just basically go out and, 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 and move these areas and use any kind of a generic deer scent uh, in there and use a buck scent that smells like a buck in the rut. And you can get those types of scents as well. That's where I used to use this Dr. O's stuff and uh, put some of that in there. The other thing they'll do is they'll rub, they'll chew like a branch that's overhanging, rub their eye on it. You can look all this kind of stuff up on the Internet and get videos and see them actually doing this. So a little bit of uh, deer scent up on a limb that's above, twisted, broken off. Setting up these mock scrapes is very, very effective. I've taken several bucks over mock scrape sets. And usually what you want to do is do two or three of them spread out maybe 10, 15, 20 yards apart along a trail and set up an ambush point there. Don't overhunt them. Uh, you can combine that with rattling as well. Um, and this is where I'm going to do something for you. Uh, again, I have a, what's called a rattling bag. And this is basically made up of some pieces of wood and a little bag. And it's one of the things that goes uh, in, my, uh, in my bag of tricks, so to speak, that I always take with me when I bow hunt. Um, I don't always do this. There's times of year where this is more effective. During the rut and the pre-rut, uh, this is very effective. Early in the season in a lot of states where the deer are nowhere near ready to rut yet, they're three, four weeks out from really being in the rut, it generally doesn't work as well, but it always can work. And there's different types of rattling. I'm going to give you three uh, different techniques here. Uh, the first one is the one that probably everybody is uh, is familiar with, which is just the big old crash. And that sounds like this. Again, if you're listening to headphones, I don't know if maybe this will be a little bit louder or whatever, uh, but, here, but here it comes. This is when the two almost hit like, you know, like bighorn rams. All right, so, uh, and generally that's not how you would do that. Those that three uh, pulse there, it was kind of doing it twice. You could either do a, just an initial crack, and a lot of times you'll hear that, especially when you're out and, and you know, observing deer over feeders or whatever when they're in the pre-rut, or a crack and a little bit of a, of a tussle. And then maybe a pause and another collision. Okay, and um, you know there's there, there's two techniques there. One is the crash, and then there's there's that that's just kind of the, 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 the where they're coming together. And, and I've seen big bucks do that and back off and never get into this part of it. And then there's the, that's the serious fight going on, right? That's two significant sized white tail bucks really going at it. Uh, they have to have significant horn structure. They have to be mature deer to to do this, right? And then uh, there's another technique 
that's also very, very effective for a variety of reasons. That could be too large deer or it could be too small deer, but it's more of kind of a gentle sparring. It's just kind of a... They're just kind of tickling their tips together. They're not real serious yet. A lot of times younger deer will do this. You know, because they just don't have the structure. Let me go ahead and lock the bag up so it doesn't keep making noises. The, the younger deer will do that because uh, they're just kind of finding themselves. And they don't have the structure to make the big, the big serious fight. And a lot of times mature bucks maybe will do this with slightly smaller bucks if they really know they don't need to run off yet or they're in the pre-rut. But what it does is it kind of sends a message that there's something going on and it's not real serious, so those younger, immature bucks aren't as likely to, to be intimidated. They'll come in, and you bet that big buck wants to know, what the heck's going on? Is there you know, a couple fork horns over there trying to steal my does? I, I, you know, I'm kind of keeping tabs on the competition, and I'm not aware of what's going on here. It'll also, a lot of times, that light you know, tickling and all, unlike the real heavy fighting, the light tickling usually doesn't uh, intimidate does either. So they can be used in combination. But one thing I want to point out is if you are going to do, let's say you're going to go out there and it's, it's the right time of year and you're going to rattle a full rattling set where you're going to stop and not do anything else for maybe another 20 minutes might be just like this. Done. It's not something you just sit there and keep doing over and over and over again because deer don't behave that way. Um, they don't have those long, drawn-out fights. It's usually not very long before one basically says to the other, hey, guess what, buddy, I'm king of this hill, and these are my does, and he kind of slinks off and tries to find his own way to kind of snipe at the edge of the territory. Um, there's also some use of grunts and bleats, and this is where I'm not going to do a really good job for you. Uh, I have one call that basically does grunts and bleats based on how you use it. But the grunt is something that mostly is done by bucks. And it kind of kind of sounds like this. And I've, I've seen that be very effective at bringing even young deer in. Um, I've seen a lot of deer that, that if you, you know, sometimes you'll be out, you just kind of feel like maybe there's some deer around. You get the grunt call, and you don't do a real aggressive, but just a, a you know, grunt. And uh, I've seen deer run to see what's going on. Just like, what the hell? What, what, what's that? Who, where was the other deer? Um, I actually took a, 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 a very young, um, it was probably about maybe a year and a half old, really good meat doe one time like that. I blew the grunt call one time, and she literally ran in like a dog to a whistle. Uh, so it can happen. It doesn't always happen. And then there's the bleat, and that's more of a doe sound. And this is kind of like a wah, And that also can attract deer. Uh, it definitely will attract uh, bucks, there's permeations of these that are more territorial, more breeding. It's something you have to learn about for yourself. But you'll definitely do better um, uh, with calls for most people. You're not, you know, most people are not uh, capable of making these sounds. Some guys are really good at it. I'm not. But that gives you the basics. Now, the bleat also has a purpose. It, it really doesn't come into bow hunting as much as it does gun hunting. Uh, when you've got the deer that's moving, you need to stop them. That simple, even even like that, is generally not something that scares them, and they lock up. It's kind of like going, you know, whistling to get them to stop, but whistling sometimes makes them stop, sometimes makes them haul ass. The problem with using that as a way to stop them with the bow is they generally, they're close enough that they completely locate the sound, and they put those eyeballs right on you. And I want to talk a little bit about getting busted, and, and, and like something you may, if you've never done this, you may have a hard time understanding how hard it is to keep your composure. You, if you ever get busted by a deer and it knows something's not right, but it's not sure it's not ready to run yet, and it sees you in the tree, it starts doing the hoof stomp and the head bob. It is one of the most humorous activities you can see an animal do. And you're deadly serious about trying to make this deer into chops and steaks. But it's hard not to laugh. If you laugh, they get you and they run off. What they'll do is they put their head down like they're feeding and they start bobbing their head around a little bit like they're eating, but their, 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 their mouth is, you know, six inches above the ground. They're never touching the ground. And then they look back real quick. And then they do it again and then they look back real quick. And then they start turning their head sideways like when you're talking to a German shepherd. And then they start taking that front foot and they stomp the foot. And they stomp the foot. They're trying to get you to move. And then that head goes down and comes back up. 
Once that happens, I've had a couple situations where that's happened to me that I've been able to keep my composure and um, you uh, you know get another opportunity and, and, and take the shot. But a lot of times it's over. Even if they don't run off, they're just not going to present you with the opportunity for the shot. Remember, it's not like a gun. It's not raise and pull the trigger. Um, that movement is significant, drawing that bow. And if they're on alert, it's very hard to get a, a, an arrow drawn on them. Um, but it is it is absolutely a humorous experience. The most important thing when that deer is kind of checking you out is to never make eye contact. I don't care if you're in a full camo suit with like leaf material, you know, synthetic leaves on it. You've got a head net and everything. I don't care if you have a, you know, your your you have your head net over your 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 glasses or your eyes. Your your eyes are in there and they can see them. And if you make eye contact, it's over. It's absolutely over you have to kind of look around the deer to keep an eye on what 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 the deer's doing but if the eyes lock on your eyes it is, and you'll know it the first time it happens you'll absolutely you even if you're convinced there's no way this deer could possibly even see my pupils you'll feel it they'll feel it and they're gone and it'll happen every time and it's part of what makes you know uh, bow hunting so significant that just wasn't wouldn't happen if you were there with even a shotgun with a slug or buckshot in it you would never have the potential for it to go wrong that way you'd be able to get the shot take the animal with the bow not so much um, next feeders um, people have misconceptions about feeders I think that a lot of people really believe things about hunting deer near or over feeders that aren't true If you feed deer year-round, if you do that in a place where their hunting pressure is relatively light, except during deer season, and if deer season has a controlled number of hunters and there's enough feeder stations out there, like a professional operation, let's say, in South Texas, again, feeding year-round and not having a tremendous amount of native food uh, that would be preferable anyway to throwing them deer pellets or corn, um, you can get them conditioned that way. You can get to the point where when that, you don't see a deer anywhere. You, you swear you can see for miles on those open senderos, and that feeder goes, and you hear the corn flying, and you see deer literally running like dogs. And I don't like that type of hunting. I, I do see that as an abuse of the ability to, uh, in some states, legally hunt feeders. But when you have a single feeder or a couple feeders set up uh, on a piece of property that, 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 that's surrounded by other areas where deer are hunted and there's significant browse and there's a lot of choice. There's acorn, there's persimmon, there's berries, there's everything a deer could want. The, the feeder will help you evaluate deer. It will help uh, keep them in the area. But it won't be like ringing the dinner bell and they run up to it like dogs, especially if you don't feed year-round. Uh, feeders are an effective tool. I have absolutely no problem hunting near or around or even on them. If you're in a place where it's legal, I'm not even putting down the operations that run the way that I described. I just want you to understand that there's tremendous differences in how feeders are used. And just because someone is using the technique doesn't mean that it's like shooting fish in a barrel. It really doesn't mean that at all. Uh, in fact, I think that most people that feel that way live in places where it's illegal, and they assume since it's illegal, it must be that easy. Now, there's a lot of things that you're not allowed to do that don't necessarily mean that it's easy if you could do them. And uh, I think that it also depends on the, the climate, it depends on the geography, it depends on the surround. I mean, there's so many things there, so I just don't want you to write it off as something you shouldn't do, unless legally you cannot. Even in a lot of states where you can't um, hunt feeders, you can feed deer up to a certain point before deer season. It can help you, you know, with a game camera. Uh, the, the trail camera is another thing we never had back back in, you know, when I was a kid. Uh, we never had those, but uh, that can help you identify certain deer, what time they're moving, where they're going, things like that. Um, so they are an effective tool, even if you don't hunt on them. Uh, they also help if you have a relatively small piece of land that you own independently uh, with supplementing how many deer can use your land and giving yourself a higher huntable population. So there's a lot to feeders beyond just, um, just having a place where you can shoot a deer. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about the necessary stuff bag and the things that I always carry. One thing that I always carry in my bag is a light. Uh, you're probably going in before dark and coming out when it's too dark to see well. If you put a deer, if you put an arrow in a deer a couple, uh, a couple, you know, maybe say 20 minutes before sundown, by the time you're tracking that deer down, you're probably looking for blood in the dark. Uh, so a flashlight is absolutely imperative. You need a string 
uh, a rope with a clip on it that's designed to pull your bow up to your stand if you're stand hunting. And even if you're not standing, have one of those anyway because you never know when you might have an opportunity to do some type of an impromptu tree stand hunting and be able to get that bow up. Never climb a tree uh, in any way, whether it's with a stand or a ladder or what have you, with your bow, with those razor-sharp arrows. So that's got to be there. Knife, but that's not in the bag. It's on the belt. But you've got to have a good knife. Always carry a backup knife in the bag, just a small, very sharp pocket knife that at least I can gut with uh, in case something happens to my knife or I forget my knife or something like that. Um, also, toilet paper. Obviously, for its most uh, you know, most common use, right? Because you might have to do something and not want to go home to do it. And uh, I don't like that's not great dinner conversation, so I don't talk a lot about it. But it's also one of the greatest tools for tracking you'll ever find. You're trying to track a deer. You find a little bit of blood. You take a big clump of toilet paper. You throw it there on the ground. Very easy to find it again if you lose the trail. Go back and start looking again. It's also, it's, it's dark, you're shining a light, is that water, is that blood? You take a piece of toilet paper, set it down on that, that droplet, turn it over, look at it. If it's blood, you'll know. Uh, it, when you're tracking, you all, you know, I'm talking about a deer that's been injured here. Sometimes water's helpful, too. I had a deer one time uh, that went fairly far for being hit well. Uh, it went about 150 yards, honestly, with a double lung hit and was bleeding profusely and ran to a creek and drank water. Uh, because the, it's just an instinctive thing to do. And when she did that, she actually stopped bleeding for a bit and kept going. And it was dark and hard to see turn leaves and stuff like that. But by shining the light, I was able to see the water glisten and the track that she took and eventually find some more blood and find the deer and get her that evening instead of trying to come back the next day uh, with the risk of lost a coyote or a, an un a dishonest hunter or what have you. Um, so there's a, a lot to be said for that. Um, you need a rope of some sort for dragging your deer out. That's absolutely imperative. Any of your calls and things like that is best to keep in a bag. I always bring some lip balm in there because you get out in wind and cold and things like that. Chap lips are no fun. Uh, any of the little things that you might need for repairing your bow uh, and other significant things like that. I always carry two gallon size Ziploc bags. Uh, those are for the heart and the liver, and those are the only two organs, I guess you would say, that I take. Uh, if I field dress a deer and leave the generally uh, most places that I would hunt, I would actually gut the deer in the woods and leave the gut bile behind, which coyotes, raccoons, bears, what have you, would be happy to eat. I don't consider that any problem. But the, but the liver and the heart, I actually like to eat. Why two bags? You take one bag, you put them inside it. You take that bag and you put it inside the second bag, and that way uh, it's not going to leak out. As the, uh, as especially the liver uh, would generally be heavy with with leaching out uh, a lot of excess blood. Uh, generally speaking, I would take that and then throw it inside the chest cavity of the deer that had just been gutted and drag the deer out rather than put it in a pack or something. It would still be very warm and it'll allow it to to cool that way. Uh, I want to. I can't tell you how to dress a deer, how to how to field dress. You know, just gut a deer uh, in audio. It just doesn't work. There's plenty of videos out there if you want to see how to do it. But one thing I want to advise you as a bow hunter: sometimes you'll shoot a deer, you won't find the arrow, or you'll find a part of the arrow and not the arrow with the broadhead. There was, and one of the things that you do after you open up the the abdominal cavity is there's the diaphragm, and it looks like two curtains, and you cut through those, and you'll hear the chest, the arrow come out of the chest. And then you reach up into the chest. I know this sounds gross, but it's what you do. You basically grab the esophagus from the inside, cut the esophagus, and then everything will pretty much pull out for you. Well, as I was sticking, you can't see what you're doing when you do that. As I was sticking my hand up into the chest cavity, I felt, uh, and I didn't even think about it at first, just something rubbed my arm that felt, you know, kind of abrasive, hard. I figured maybe it was a piece of a cracked rib when the arrow penetrated or something. And just before I went to stick my other hand up there with the knife, I got a sick feeling in my stomach and thought, I know what that is, that's the broadhead. And very, very carefully uh, used my other hand, because I didn't want to pull my arm back out and possibly do more damage, and uh, felt and it was actually the, uh, the broken side of the arrow where the broadhead wasn't on my hand, and I was able to grab that, uh, push it well away from my arm, and extract it from the deer, and then go on with gutting the deer. But obviously I could have cut my arm extremely uh, uh, badly. So whenever you don't have sight of the broadhead, assume it's in the chest cavity. Uh, that can do a lot of damage to you, and obviously the risk of infection, 
Lyme disease, things like chronic wasting disease. We don't know if that's transmittable that way, but it's certainly I don't want deer blood uh, mixing with my own blood into my body, and that's a great way for that to happen. Uh, some of you veteran bow hunters that have been waiting for something, uh, that might be the one. That might be the one you never thought of. It's less likely with carbon arrows. You don't get a lot of broken arrows and, and, and stuff like that, uh, but it still can happen. Uh, also, make sure when you fi if you find that arrow on a pass-through shot, Uh, or broken off and a piece of it sticking in the ground or what have you. Look at the broadhead. Are all the blades there? It's just as likely that one blade's in there somewhere, and it's something you have to be careful of. Um, I was never one that used gloves for that, uh, but now I actually carry uh, some, some rubber gloves, and it just is easier than trying to clean your hands if there's not a stream around or using your water or something like that. So those are some other things, and those are the main things Uh, that go in my little bag that I always have with me. I generally carry something that looks sort of like a fanny pack for that, camouflaged. And what I like about it, it's not so much that that's the way I carry it, but it's not. I don't need a backpack for this, and I've got the stand on my back. The nice thing about that is when I get to my stand, pull, go up in my stand, pull my bow and my bag up with me, and get up in that stand, I can then take that bag and unhook it and wrap it around the tree and open the bag so I can get to all my stuff and have it out of the way, or even more optimal is when there's another tree close to me that I can reach easily, putting it around that tree, and I have all of my stuff available, including maybe a little spot of lunch and, and some extra water and things like that as well. I always take my quiver off my bow once I'm on stand, and I generally take that quiver and put it on either like one of the, the bolts on the back of the stand or in another tree and hang it like that. I find that it's better, it's easier for me to shoot. It's less, uh, it's, it makes a smaller, uh, uh, smaller sight picture, I guess you would call it. Not really sight picture, but what am I looking for? Um, it's something less to be seen by the deer, right? It's a smaller form factor is what I'm looking for. The bow, the bigger the bow itself is, the more things that are moving as I'm moving, the more likely I am to get burned. So that's something else that, uh, that I, I always do is take that off, knock one arrow, and uh, feel that I have plenty of time if I have a deer that warrants a second shot that I'm going to be able to get one off to get that arrow out of the quiver, even though it's not directly on the bow. Um, next, I want to talk a little bit about uh, patterns and behaviors. But you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to break this show into two episodes because we are already at an hour and five minutes. And I've realized now... That this is going to probably be Wednesday's show. I'll probably try to do this unless Wednesday gets preempted. I think Thursday might get preempted this week. So I'm going to go ahead and record a second show on this. And the second show, I'm going to talk more about uh, patterns in behavior. I'm going to talk about uh, the effect of hunting pressure. I'm going to talk about finding land, uh, different options with that. So uh, I promised you a, a bow hunting primer, and I guess because I love this sport so much and I see it as such a valuable way to not only learn learn the woods learn a skill and put meat on the table but to preserve a tradition that it's easy for me to go along like this so uh, come back tomorrow and we'll wrap this episode up because I don't want it to be a two hour episode and uh, with all the stuff going on this week again being back in Arlington and having very little of my stuff here I need as much material as I can get so uh, tune in tomorrow and uh, you know with that this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast helping you figure out how to live that better life talk to you tough or even if they don't let me show you a better way Nobody up there cares, they're living for